The project they got is called Risk Calc. It's a qualitative risk assessment program based on the Kepner Trago algorithm. And let's not go into that detail, but for those who really want to Google it, you could probably find it. And essentially, instead of just using an ALE numeric calculation, you can use kind of fuzzy logic, low, medium, high, good, bad, poor, stuff like that. And it maps into something. On the back end, obviously it's math, but on the front end, it's interview questions. That's G. Mark Hardy talking with me about his work in data risk management quite some few years ago now. G. Mark is president at National Security Corporation. He's a 37-year Navy veteran, and he's also host of the CISO Tradecraft podcast, a podcast produced by my buddy Ross Young. It's a show I just appeared on last week as of the time of this recording. Now, G. Mark and I talked before the show about data risk management and how old it really is. This show is a fascinating dive into the origins of data risk management, measurement, and quantification. Join me and G. Mark as he spins stories of the old days and speaks of some of yesterday's greatest leaders in this space, whose advice, I might add, is still very, very relevant today. To simply think of them as yesterday's leaders is to miss the whole point of this show, and that's that there's not a whole lot really new here in data risk management and quantification. G. Mark, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Well, Alan, thanks so much. It's great to get down here. At least the weather down here is better, at least in the virtual studios that is up north. There we go. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So why don't you tell us briefly a little bit about your background in cyber and just a little bit about your day job? Sure. So from a cyber perspective, I started doing this quite a while ago, I guess, probably technically my first real job getting paid full time doing cybersecurity work was right after high school when during high school, I probably found most of the holes that were in the system. And instead of going bad, I decided to go straight and I got hired by the school system to go fill all those holes over that summer. So it was a full-time job at a time when full-time jobs were scarce. It was in Buffalo, New York, and we were looking at probably close to 20% unemployment. Bethlehem Steel Plant had shut down, Bell Aerospace shut down, Ford shut down, plus, of course, the snow and the taxes. But nonetheless, I was able to land that job at a whopping $2.10 an hour. And if somebody does homework, they can probably figure out what year they could have legally paid me that. Hint, it was below minimum wage. But as a result of that, I gained a lot of understanding of security. I had a lot of enemies when I left for Northwestern University because all the hacks that used to work didn't work anymore. <laughs> and it's interesting. Some of the stuff we had pulled back in the early 70s, I'll put the dates around it, involved things such as trying to spoof the system administrator to go ahead and click on a, it wasn't a link, but hey, would you run this program? We wrote a tic-tac-toe program. Well, embedded in there were privileged command lines that would have made us super user and things like that. And right. I gave a whole talk on that many years ago. And I think it was called a hacker looks at 50, which I gave at DEF CON and did one follow on that, like a hacker looks past 50 at ShmooCon. And so for anybody who likes old stories are on the web someplace. After that degree at Northwestern University, sold my soul for my college degree, took an ROTC scholarship and then off to sea for five years after getting degrees in mathematics and computer science. After five years, I said to the Navy, I want to go do computer security at NSA. And I was able to get orders to the agency. And in fact, they asked for me. They said, hey, this is Lieutenant. He's got this background. He seemed to be smart. And then I got this nasty call from Washington. They said, Lieutenant, what are you trying to do? 
I says, I want to go to NSA. And he says, what are you going to do at NSA? He says, I'm going to do computer security. And this is a quote for the ages. The Navy has no need for computer security. You're going back out to sea. I think, but I've just had five years at sea. I've got a short tour coming up. Now, she says, you, you take this career, kiss your career goodbye. I'll never promote, pa- promote past lieutenant. Now, I didn't know any better at the time. Here I am, 20-something years old, and I'm being told by this lieutenant commander in Washington, D.C. that my career would be over. Well, I wanted to do security. I love the Navy, and I found a way to split the difference. So I resigned my active duty commission, went into the reserves, wrote out a three-year plan, and then started it by getting a job at Booz Allen Hamilton. And then I went for a little startup, which we'll start mentioning names a little bit later, where you hear somebody from the guy I went to work for. And then ultimately, two years, six months, started what I have now, National Security Corporation. Meanwhile, my reserve career tracked along, retired as a Navy captain, had a pretty good run at that, nine command tours, had a blast. A lot of work. But what's interesting is that a guy was a year behind me in the Navy, also spent five years at sea, also got the little by-name request to go to NSA, but he drank the Kool-Aid. He changed his designator from being a warfighter to a cryptographer or cryptologist. And uh, he just retired two years ago, Mike Rogers. Not to say that it could have done what Mike did, but it was one of those butterfly effects because here you are, you're ahead of this guy, but what, what do you know? 30, 35 years in advance. Right. Subsequently to then been in and out of my own business uh, today, uh, work as a virtual CISO for a couple of businesses, do consulting on top of that. As you had mentioned before, have the CISO Tradecraft podcast, which we have now successfully done over 60 weekly episodes and counting, and everything else that comes along with trying to keep all those oars in the water in life. I get that. All right, man. That's a great and colorful history. And speaking of history, G. Mark and I were talking before the show, and we were talking about risk and fair and measuring risk and all those good things and talking about you know what new approach towards that world have we not discuss on his show, my show, et cetera. And G Mark, you pulled up FIPS 65 from the NIST website, which was published for those who don't know it in 1979. It is on the NIST website indeed, but it is there in the form of a scanned physical document. It's not searchable text. It's a graphic scan of an old three-hole punch document from 1979, mainframe era. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what does this mainframe era document cover? Yeah, well, I still have my original copy somewhere in a box someplace. So nice. Again, this this would have been what Captain Grace Hopper would have probably used had she been doing any ADP risk analysis during her career. I was going to say you do mean Admiral Hopper, don't you? <laughs> well, right, but this came out long before she promoted Admiral. That's why I said it could be used by Captain Hopper. Right, right. Yeah, she promoted the Commodore in '83, then the Navy renamed Commodore to Rear Admiral Lower Half, and so that's how she got to retire. Is that? And uh, as I think I'd mentioned on one of my podcasts, I had a chance to meet her and we spoke at the same conference. And I think it was 1986. She was a keynote and I was just a warm up speaker, but it was pretty neat getting a chance to meet a piece of living history and her horn rimmed glasses and her unfiltered camel cigarette that she kind of used as a pointer when she talked to you, kind of poking it at you to make a point. Oh, that's but awesome. But Club 65 which came out in 79, was called the Guideline for Automatic Data Processing Risk Analysis. And that sort of sounds like the granddaddy of them at all. And a lot of that work was the result of Bob Courtney. Now, Bob Courtney at the time worked for IBM. I had a chance to meet with him a few times back in the 80s. 
Uh, I think Bob has passed on. He would be 101 years old today had he kept going. But nonetheless, he was one of the first giants of the past that I wanted to mention. And within the Phipps Pub 65, it basically introduces the concept that we kind of know about today, where you have your integrity, confidentiality, and availability. Of course, today we call it CIA. And you know, there's a little side story, but at some point in time, somebody, I think, wrote a paper in 87. This is according to a CSO online article I found right. that suggests that the earliest concept of confidentiality in computer science was formalized in a 1976 U.S. Air Force study. Integrity came out in an 87 paper. And yet, although this is there into CSO Online, a nice official document, I got older references than that. So there. That's mm. nice. So anyway, what the, the concept there is we compute what's called an annualized loss expectancy or ALE. And an ALE was fundamentally how bad can it be? impact, and how often does it occur? The frequency of occurrence. And therefore, your loss is calculated as impact times frequency of occurrence. Thus, with an annual loss exposure, we would say as a sample, your, and we'll use modern day examples, your company has iPhones. And let's say for the sake of argument, an iPhone costs 500 bucks, make yep. nice round numbers. And your company loses or employees lose about 20 a year. Well, what's your annualized loss expectancy due to have to replace iPhones? 20 times 500 or $10,000. Now, what do you do with that number? It's helpful if you want to figure out, do I buy insurance? Guy comes in and says, I sell insurance policies. It will magically provide a new iPhone when you lose one. We'll take all the transaction costs out just to keep it a math problem. Well, what if the guy wants $20,000 a year for that insurance policy? You've calculated your ALE and say, I'm only at risk for 10 grand. No, we'll right. live with it. Right. If he charges $5,000, hey, that's a deal because your expected value, your expected annual loss exposure is twice your premium. And you're like, well, they might cancel my policy after losing money after a few years, but I'm farther ahead. The real question, and this goes outside the scope of risk assessment, it comes down into a sense of risk appetite, which is personal. What if the guy did his homework and said, your policy is $10,000? Now you've got to decide, do I pay $10,000 in fixed cost when I know that's going to be my loss? Or do I roll the dice and hope that I have less than that, but mathematically it's going to be 10K, could be more, could be less. And that's an individualized type of a, arrangement that you have to think about. So as we get into risk assessment, and of course you've approached it in a couple other episodes, ultimately it's our interpretation of risk that represents how we respond. Because as we used to say, you can always tell when a risky event is about to occur. And it begins with these words, hey, hold my beer, watch this. Right. And so usually <laughs> that precedes some sort of a bad activity. A good leading indicator. What's interesting to me with this ale method, because we talk about the modern methods, we talk about Monte Carlo mm -hmm. Sims, we talk about FAIR, we get into some fairly sophisticated mathematical models. And everybody today likes to contrast those to the good old five by five grid, ordinal scale. Mm -hmm. Is that ordinal scale really a valid means of doing this? And ale in this document is an eight by eight grid, but it's not simply populated with ordinal math. What is the formula for ale? It's a little more complex and a little more sophisticated than a mere grid. Right. Well, trying to make it simple for those because I can't write an equation on, on a podcast, right. but think of it this way. Instead of using a linear scale, we use a logarithmic scale, which means powers of typically powers of 10, uh, doesn't have to be, but in this case, 
we could do that. And so when we look at cost impact, your eight columns, the first column would be 10 to the first power, one. The next one, 10 to the second power, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, million, 10 million, 100 million, topped out at 100 million. Well, back then, that was a lot of money. If you, if you kind of remember from Dr. Evil, you know, $50 billion. And like, <laughs> it's not that much money in the world back then. Right, so right, right. in any case, that is going to go ahead and provide us with our cost impact, which is going to be our up and down or the vertical axis. Now, on the horizontal axis, how often does it occur? With a reference of once per day, then if you move faster than that, it's 10 times a day or 100 times a day. So that's the far right. But then going to the left where it goes down once every 10 days, once every 100 days. Well, every 1,000 days is three years, roughly. Right. 30 years, 300 years. So the least damaging, least likely combination up in that corner would be it happens once every 300 years and it costs you $10. Right. All right. So what they'll do is they'll populate then, if you think about it, do the math, you'll have diagonals mm -hmm. because 100 times once every 100 days gives you about the same exposure as 1,000 times once every 1,000 days or 10,000 once every 10,000 days and right. so on. And as a result, what we'll see is the bands, which typically gets translated in today's world of the very low, low, medium, high, very high going from the different color codes. But it's an old black and white publication, so no colors here. Right. It's it's you know it's but it's not the ordinal scale. That's what's so fascinating about it. The end product looks very similar to the modern heat map, but they got there through logarithmic means rather than ordinal means, which I think is very fascinating. And to your point about ICA and CIA, right? He calls it what is uh, uh, sixty-five here. Well, they describe it from a perspective of not necessarily being C, I, and A as we like to think of, yep. but it actually calls it data integrity data confidentiality, and then ADP availability. Right, which is ADP is an old mainframe term for the vertical rack itself, right? The vertical rack filled with gear. Well, and, automatic data processing. Yeah, yeah. In fact, at my old uh, Northwestern graduation ring, every degree had its own little thing on the side of it. For me, being a computer science major, it is a nine-track tape. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, I had a nine-track tape on my, my ring. I don't wear it. It's got in a box someplace. That's I'm not nice. a jewelry guy. So, so we had a logarithmic scale back in 79. And mm -hmm. somehow, as an industry, we sort of abandon that. We get into this five-by-five five grid. And then somebody comes along and says, nay, 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 my friends, we need to apply real math to this. And suddenly, Fair and Monte Carlo Sims and all these other things kind of come to the forefront in our industry. It, it's mind-blowing to me that we had something better than the ordinal scale all the way back then and somehow forgot it. It goes back farther. Okay. Because if you take a look at the references on Phipps Pub 65, it points back to Phipps Pub 31, written and published anyway, back in June of 1974. Wow. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Axonius and give your team's time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. 
So now we'll roll it all the way back. And Bob Jacobson, who I think is still around, was a principal author. But the interesting thing was, is that one of the other contributing authors was Peter Brown. And I went to work for Peter Brown in 1986 to develop and be a programmer to writing risk assessment software. And what's interesting is you go all the way back to the Phipps Pub 31, which somebody has indeed scanned this paper three-hole punch thing out there. What they do is they lay out the concept of doing an ADP security analysis. And instead of just kind of poking around at it and saying, just calculate numbers, they have an action summary. Now think about this. So this is about 50 years ago. And a lot of us doing security, they say, well, we've invented all these wonderful ideas. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. Number one, you organize your physical security program. Number two, conduct a risk analysis. And that's where our 65 uh-huh, uh-huh. Then you determine your local natural disaster probabilities. And this document has pictures of when thunderstorms occur and hurricanes and things like that. Yeah. Number four, initiate a security program. Five, protect your supporting utilities like electrical power and things such as that, because that yep. could implement or impact availability. Number six, optimize your computer reliability. Seven, provide physical protection, then add internal procedural security, plan for security, develop security awareness. There okay. we go for all the security awareness programs. And the last one is audit, audit your physical security. Oh, that's beautiful. So this is nothing new. This is stuff that has been around a long time. We've repackaged it. And there's not too many of us who remember some of these earlier authors like Bob Courtney, Bob Jacobson, Peter Brown, who I had the privilege to work with. And it's a bit of a trip down memory lane when I was preparing for this podcast, just to think about some of these real giants that had preceded me, even me. Yeah, th- this is great because even the FIPS 65, and I, I keep saying FIPS 165, it's as if my brain doesn't know how to not insert a one in front of a FIPS document. So two digits here, FIPS 65. If you look at the example, after they outline the AL math and they go through the charts and all the formulas, they actually get into physical, tangible examples. And they talk about the mainframe and exactly how many tape drives it has and where it is in the data center. And they talk about physical security and they talk about UPSs and they talk about security guards and they talk about fire suppression systems. Like, it's like none of this is new. I mean, I'm sure back then it was a whole different technology for fire suppression, hopefully not water, but it's mind blowing to me that this is all the same thing. It is. And the thing is, not a whole lot has has changed over the years. Now, in 1985, I started my master's program at GW University, and my professor uh, was Lance Hoffman, Mm -hmm. who's now like a distinguished professor emeritus. But but Lance was a pretty neat guy. He was the first person to ever have a graduate-level computer security course. There were, of course, no degrees in computer security. The fact that there actually was a course there was huge. Right. And Lance, I liked the guy because he was a bit of an entrepreneur as well as a professor. And I remember the next course I took at GW, it was on cryptography and crypto systems. And a quick little aside there, mm-hmm. that professor was a former CIA employee and a PhD electrical engineer. And wow. it was kind of interesting. And what happened was we learned codes throughout the semester, but there was only a final exam. And so you could have just blown off all the classes. And when they teach you something, the real simple one, okay, here's a Caesar cipher, here's a shift cipher. Okay, here's a Vigenaire cipher. Here's a polyalphabetic multiple cipher of unknown period, blah, 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 blah. And so I was dutifully programming these things away at the time I was working at Booz Allen. 
and my client was uh, General Services Administration, GSA, and they uh-huh. had a timeshare where they could use, how's this for a, a flashback, APL programming language, because I was a master of that. I would just write these algorithms in APL and be done with them. Well, final exam comes out, and I've got some client work that I've got to get done, so I can't sit for it. I said, but can I go ahead and do a take-home? I said, yeah, you got 24-hour take-home. Okay. So fine. It's get my take-home exam, start the 24-hour clock. It's I think, a Saturday morning. Come in, so I'm not going to be gone company time. And we start working it. And all the stuff is encrypted, including the directions. The directions are encrypted. So you have to, and that was the simplest <laughs> cipher. If you couldn't, if you had been blown off the course or you did terribly. And once you decrypted that, you had the first cipher. Click, 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 put it in there. Boom, solve it. Second one. And then when it had the polyalphabetic cipher of unknown period, I know we're a little bit off topic for risk, but you got me talking. It's like I put all this stuff in there and it, I built my software. It had all these places I could put hints and it just cracked it. And it's like, whoa. This is the coolest thing. So now I'm getting ready to do the final and I'm getting ready to go ahead and I'm keying in all this ciphertext and the message comes up on this IBM timeshare system. System going down for unplanned maintenance. We'll be back up on Monday. I'm like, ah, no. oh, it's not like you have another laptop. This is a mainframe. All this software is on the mainframe. Right. So I remember driving out to um, the latest post office that had a pickup up in Fairfax, Virginia. And I sat in the I think it was the Dunkin' Donuts, and I cracked it by hand and sent all this stuff in, and I mailed it in. Well, heard nothing heard out. Well, next semester went over, counted up with the professor, and I said, How did you know how did we do? He said, Well, it was a 400 point course. Yeah. The second highest grade in the class was 240 out of 400. Okay. Like, That's a tough exam. And I'd be like, how badly did I do? He said, You scored 400 out of 400. Would you like a job with a three-letter agency? I said, I've already been through that effort. You know, a different one. It didn't work out. Nonetheless, Lance Hoffman, and again, I, I'm drawing a blank on this gentleman's name. He was a professor. But these were kind of lean-forward folks. One of the neat things with Lance is in our class in 85 is that one of the students for our, our project wrote a software risk assessment tool. It was basically a quantitative risk assessment tool. And... Lance said, can I buy it from you? Can I buy the rights for, for this thing that you wrote as software as a student project? Okay. And then he said, hey, this is cool. We call it Risk Calc. And then he went ahead and sent it to Peter Brown and said, let's start selling it. Well, how do I get hooked up with Peter Brown? Through Lance Hoffman. I'm working for Booz Allen and I'm figuring, I want to come work for this company because what do they do? They do all kinds of work. They do consulting work. They said, we're a bunch of entrepreneurs who got together to share a photocopier. Well, Turns out that unless you're a partner, you can't make any of those decisions. You're a minion. You go out and work. Your job's be 98% billable and make us happy. I remember wanting to go ahead and, and pitch to the partner that we should be doing this computer security show. It was a CSI show. I went to one in Chicago. I got my one trip of the year. And I put down a thousand bucks out of my own pocket. Now, back then I was getting paid 34000 a year. So that's non-trivial amount of money. Right. They said, we can go ahead and exhibit there. And I remember going to see, I think it was Bob Swid. He was the senior partner. And it reminded me so much of the Pink Floyd, come in here, dear boy, have a cigar. The guy's <laughs> got a gold vest in his jacket, the big rings, mustache, smoking a uh, cigar or something like that. And basically it's like, hey, here's my vision of what we can do. He's like, kid, that's what we partners do. You just go out there and be billable. Well, 
That wasn't what I wanted to do. So a month later, I was working for Peter Brown because he said I could write software and I could go ahead and do consulting and learn small business, which was still part of my three-year plan. Beautiful. Beautiful. So here's how risk assessment falls into it. The project they got is called Risk Calc. It's a qualitative risk assessment program based on the Kepner-Trago algorithm. And let's not go into that detail, but for those who really want to Google it, you could probably find it. And essentially, instead of just using an ALE numeric calculation, you can use kind of fuzzy logic, low, medium, high, good, bad, poor, stuff like that. And it maps into something. On the back end, obviously it's math, but on the front end, it's interview questions. Yeah, you're you're allowed to be a little fuzzy on the front. Monte Carlo Sims work the same way. It's sort of like that, yeah. And so Lance had hooked me up with that. Yeah, Lance was a great mentor. He had another student that came along a few years later, a guy by the name of Amit Uran. You might mm-hmm. have heard of him. He's now the CEO of Tenable. But he had also been at the White House for a year, and he'd had a very distinguished career. And I think Lance was the sort of person, if you encountered him, he kind of spun you into the next level of orbit. And so working with Peter Brown, who is also, as I mentioned, one of these authors of FIPS 31. Now, back in the 80s, we're putting out risk pack, risk calc. We're doing risk assessment software. And I remember our biggest competitor was Risk Watch by a lady by the name of Carolyn Hamilton. And she was a character. Oh, she was funny. And we got together. She, was, she liked to ride horses. And I remember we were at, I think it was RSA many, many years ago. And so she was handing out horse whips as with her <laughs> company's name on it. And I'm thinking like, Something tells me if we're in San Francisco, these are not going to be used just on horses, but we're not going to go there on this show. Uh, Nonetheless, it was a real bunch of colorful folks back then who had gotten involved early on in the risk assessment process. I'm sitting here enjoying you telling the stories. I think I'm supposed to be hosting a podcast and I'm just sitting back going, cool, tell me more. (laughs) Well, if it works, if 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 the people have still listening, great, then I haven't thrown them out. But let me give you one more name in here which is kind of interesting. And this is a gentleman who is, I think he's also still around. He'd be probably in his early nineties. Don Parker, mm-hmm. Don with two ends. Don was with SRA and he spent 50 years at least in the cybersecurity, long before cybersecurity, computer security before that was InfoSec. Okay. Right. My very, my very first domain that I ever bought was InfoSec.net. Okay? Nice. And I still have it, by the way. I've had it for 20 some odd years, but it just redirects to me. What I was going to do, stillborn business plan is everybody who ever got into information security, because there were not that many of us back then. Hey, for a dollar, you become a lifetime member, we'll give you a serial number. Imagine having a serial number card saying when you got into the computer security industry. And nice. then kind of like a CISSP number, you compare like, how low is your number there, buddy? Right, right, and, right. Uh, but yeah, ideas that you come and go. But here's the interesting thing about Don. Don Parker published something that he called the I the information security, the Parkerian hexad. Now, instead of triad, confidentiality, mm-hmm. integrity, availability, Don had his hexad. Now, what's, what do we mean by hexad? It's sort of a strange word. We don't use it in everyday language. You don't go to McDonald's and say, do you want fries with that? No, I'll have a hexad. But what it is, is there's six different elements of it. Confidentiality, okay. integrity, availability, and then authenticity, possession, and utility. Now, oh, we already talked about CINA. And so we know about CINA, and I don't think we have to define much for our, our listeners what confidentiality means. Integrity, it's the way you want it to be, and availability. But Don said in his 2002 book that that's not enough. 
when you think about something like possession or control, what happens when somebody steals your laptop? Is that a C or an I or an A? It really isn't. They're in possession of your stuff. They control your information. Right. Now, here's the thing. And this has happened before. I remember when the VA had those laptops stolen several years ago. Right. And then when they finally recovered them, they said, oh, we've determined that uh, yeah, all that information was never accessed. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, how can you tell that nobody looked at the hard drive? Like, really? They're like, okay, fine, we're fine. All I know is that I'm pretty sure that AARP stole those laptops because right on schedule of my 50th birthday, boom, here's my invitation to join AARP. Like, how else did they know my date? Okay, hang anyway. on. I have to interject there because they sent me my first invitation when I turned 35. <laughs> so I'm not so sure their data stream is accurate. Well, they're using hexadecimal, so you're really 53 decimal. There you like go. Okay. There you go. That's what I love about hex. I'm still in my 30s, all right? So in any case... Go try that on Tinder sometime, though. How old are you? you know, it's like, wait a minute, that's not a number. Anyway, when we look at possession or control, it still kind of cross-threads with some of our concepts of, for example, confidentiality. When that laptop was stolen, there was a breach report. But it was a confidentiality breach report. But yet, if we were later determined that maybe they just stole the laptop and reformatted the hard drive, there was no confidentiality breach. But yet you had to report as such, you faced yeah. lawsuits and such and liability yeah. as such. In fact, some of the lawsuits companies got out of because the people who were trying to sue them couldn't prove that the attackers who stole the stuff actually saw it because nothing ever got compromised later. It was right. maybe somebody just wanted to steal the laptop. So that's controller possession. And then adds an extra dimension to the C and INA. The next one that Don talked about was authenticity. It's assurance that your message or is from who it come the claims to come from. Yep. Now we go, well, yeah, okay, uh, integrity, right? But no, you could have a message that meets full integrity. It is exactly the way the scammer, the spammer, the hacker sent it. Yep. It didn't get tampered. It's got integrity. Right. But authenticity says, who did it actually come from? And that's a proof of identity. Yeah. And we get into proof of identity through things like PKI with a certificate authority, SSL, of course, TLS these days, for at least version 1.2, make sure, folks, you're not supporting anything older. And therefore, we're able to prove the authenticity. And again, authenticity, from Don's perspective, did not match, map into the C, the I, and the A. And the last one was utility. Is this information, is this system in a useful state? Right. For example, if I want to go ahead and I've got a dating data miner that's going to go take a look at all my information, I take everything, I put it on an encrypting hard drive, put a passcode on it, and I send it off to it. Now it's safe in transit, right? Yeah. Confidential. Data mining company gets it. They said, hey, uh, we need a password. But the guy who created the pass, the system, he forgot the password. He didn't write it down or he lost it or he got thrown out in the, in the junk. That data is not in a useful state. Right. And therefore... Although you might argue there's been no breach of confidentiality or integrity or availability, or even availability it's, in hand. There, it's not useful. Right. And so what Don had done is extended the concept of the one, two, three to six. Yep. And there is a great article that he published in the July 2010 issue of the ISSA journal. And for those who like to Google things, our excessively simplistic information security model 
and how to fix it. Now, you and said he, he said, first did this in 2002, though, not 2010. It was right? his book was 2002. And then okay. eight years later is when you get a general. So it's easy to download a free PDF. It's Got a little it. bit harder without breaking the rules to download, download a, a book. Uh, somebody's whole book, which, of course, he brings up in his article. He says, how about a copyright violation? Right. That's, well, that's a problem. Is that a C or an I or an A? Right. None of the above. And, and so it turns out that he points out that our model, our traditional model, which goes into fair and everything else. And that's why I said, that's not fair. Or comes down to this. So in his article, he talks about this, that information security is the preservation of the C, the I, the A of information assets from unintended destruction, disclosure, or modification. Okay. So far, so good. By risk assessment selecting prevent, detect, recovery, and awareness controls to achieve the reduction of risk. Okay, fine. That's what we've been trained in. That's All what right. we deal with. But here's Don's model that he's had now. This is 20 years now. Information security meets the owner's need to preserve availability, yep. utility, yep. integrity, authenticity, confidentiality, and possession. Now, three of those yeah. resonate and three you've just been introduced to in the last right. 10 minutes right. but of information assets from unintended acts of abuse, misuse, and forces that would cause destruction or copying, hmm, interference with the use, use of false data, modification or replacement, misuse or failure to use, finding or even taking disclosure or observation or endangerment by now a different set of controls instead of prevent, detect, recover, you know, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Yep. We're going to get out of the uh, NIST cybersecurity framework, avoidance and deterrence. Okay. Where's that NIST? Prevention and detection. Okay. We got that. Mitigation and investigation. Okay. Respond, recover. Nope, not there. Transference, audit sanctions, and rewards. Identify, protect, no. Recovery and correction. Okay, yeah, that's probably in there. Motivation and education. Identify, protect, protect, respond, recover, not there. Why? And then all of those are selected by the diligence. Carefully select your controls to avoid negligence, really important these days from a legal perspective, an orderly and protected society. As we take a look at the impact of cybersecurity to everyone, compliance with laws, regulations, audits, ethical conduct, and successful commerce and competition. 2010. Wow. Yeah. 2010 for the article based on his 2002 book that he had written. And again, Don had been around years and years ago, uh, long before that. So another one of the great giants on there that for the most part, we don't learn. It's not like the Bell Lepadula model that you had to do. And I met both those guys back in the 80s when you always had to learn that for your CISSP. And what's the star model and what's what's the, the BIBA model and all this stuff like that. But Don never made it into any of those CERT programs. But yet, one of the true giants in the thought with respect to risk. Well, and, and, and a great predictive capability there, too. There's a Nostradamus moment for him when we talk about authenticity Flash forward to today where everybody's hopping in and out of multiple SaaS environments, infrastructure as a service, on-prem, et cetera. What's at the core of everything now? Identity and access management is probably the single most important tool in our kit. And there he was predicting that outside of the CIA triad all the way back in 2002. So that's that's impressive to me. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that are useful to know, and 
I remember covering this when I was doing my Hacker Looks at 50 talk that I gave at DEF CON years ago. It said, no disrespect to you younger guys in the audience, but the stuff you think you came up with, that your brilliant new idea, we were doing this before you were even a zygote, before you were a gleam in your father's eye. We were right. doing this long before you were born. And in fact, by looking at some of these giants of the career, they were doing it long before my career got going. And as a result, what we see then is there are these long-term truths that always work out. There's some great ideas that have taken root. There's some other great ideas like Don's Hexad that haven't so much taken root yet for those of us who are focusing on risk. If we extend our thinking to include control and possession, authenticity, and utility, we are then, if you will, doing one more than whatever the regs require. And you may be the organization that doesn't get hit when someone else does because, well, let's face it, compliant organizations get hacked all the time. And sometimes there's some luck involved, but there's sometimes a little bit of extra effort. And these are the things that help you stand out both in terms of your work and your career is doing extra effort. I love that. I want you to tell me one more time the name of the algorithm you were using back at RiskCalc, you said, was uh, that allowed you to do fuzzy questions. Kepner Trego, K-E-P-N-E-R-T-R-E-G-O-E. Okay. I knew I was going to have listeners that asked about that one. So listen, this has been a phenomenal session. This has been a great storytelling adventure for me. This is fun. And I got to switch gears here because we're getting to the end of the show. I got one question I ask every guest. What have you learned outside of cybersecurity that keeps you going in cybersecurity? I look at my, uh, I think my bills every month. <laughs> it keeps me keep working at this age. Like, why don't you retire? It's no, like, what, what, what is, expensive habit. What has um, brought you value in cybersecurity? That, that was a trick you brought from outside. What has brought you value in cyber? I, th I think a lot of it, came from my experience in the military. So I was very privileged in my Navy career. I was given the opportunity to serve in command nine different times. So I spent nearly 18 of my last 20 years of my 30-year career in a command position. In that situation, you don't go ahead and work for stock options or bonuses or extra money. If all goes well, you get a medal. That's the currency of the military. And then you get more hard work and off you go. And some people say, wait a minute, this guy's getting paid the same as you because it's based upon time and grade. And you're there working really hard, doing all this extra stuff. At the end of the day, you both get paid the exact same amount. And the thing is this, and this pertains into cybersecurity. What is your currency? What do you value? And going back to, well, again, this is 1985. So one of my clients was the U.S. Postal Service. First folks I work with, with Booz Allen. And there was a guy there who had, it was funny. And he said, all jobs lie on a continuum. If you want security, work for the government. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a lot of money, sell drugs. Right. Until you get shot or arrested, it's really good cash. But everything else is on that risk continuum. Yeah. So what I found in security is that if you're a leader, manager, CIO, CISO, director, wherever you happen to be, even head of a team uh, of a you know, pen test team, find out what your people value as their currency. And it should be a lot more than money. And then reward them for their accomplishments, their hard work, and their achievement in the currency that they like. And now it turns out that you can keep people working at the FBI, 
in uniform in the military, in a government organization, in a small company, even though there's more money out there, because you've rewarded your people with the things that they care about, a sense of teamwork, a sense of loyalty, a boss who is willing to listen and invest in their time, in their career, in their future, in their training, in their education, and all those things, you bring that into the cybersecurity world and you can be a standout leader and people will say, wow, look how fast she went or look how fast he went in their career. There's nothing magic about it. It just comes into taking care of your people. And, and learning their preferred currency. I love it. Well, G. Mark Hardy, president at National Security Corporation, host of the CISO Tradecraft podcast. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. Mm-hmm.